If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 12. Over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been working our way through this chapter. It's all one long sermon or collection of teachings from Jesus, and it really sort of builds to and crescendos here at the end of Luke chapter 12. And so we're going to take this week and next week to work through what is really sort of the culmination of everything that Jesus is saying throughout this chapter. And uh, you'll notice this morning, we're going to be in verses 35 to 48. You'll notice that's two, two sections uh, in your modern English translation. It's broken apart there after verse 40. We're going to take them together because they all, uh, the whole section there centers on the same theme. And as I've been working through Luke chapter 12 and then specifically this week preparing for this passage, I've had sort of one like recurring image or, or thought in my mind. And that is, if you can think back to when you were younger or maybe you're of this age now and you were playing hide and seek and the person who was it counted, you know, to 20 or to 50 or to 100 or whatever it was going to be. And they went 80, 98, 99, 100. And then what do they say real loud? Ready or not, here I come. Jesus' sermon here, his, his teachings in Luke chapter 12, escalate to the point where he says, ready or not, I'm coming back. And then he gives for us a little bit about what it means that he's coming back and what's coming with him when he arrives. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. The landing place is this. Followers of Jesus look and long for, live and labor in light of the Lord's long-awaited return. If you've got your Bible open there, I'm going to read verses 35 to 48 in Luke chapter 12. It says this, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Lord, Peter said, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord said, who then is faithful, the faithful and sensible manager his, ma or his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to come and to worship together. God, for the opportunity to, to gather together and to declare that you keep hope alive because you are alive. 
God, that there is hope because Jesus lives and intercedes for us. There's hope because you hold out the promise of forgiveness of our sins, God. You hold out the promise of an eternity in your presence where sin no longer exists, God, and we rejoice in light of that. God, we also thank you for your word. Even when the truths are hard and the imagery or the language strong and stark, God, we praise you because you've chosen to reveal yourself to us and that you've chosen to do so in a way that is radically honest, not for the purpose of being harsh, but for the purpose of drawing us into reverent awe and worship of you. And God, I pray that that's what you would do this morning. God, help us to see the truth of the gospel and its urgent, eternal importance. Help us to be people saved by your grace who live in light of your love who walk in submission to the kingdom and who await expectantly for the king to return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, the passage is is already broken in your Bible into two pieces, verses 35 to 40 and then verses 41 down to 48. So we're gonna work with it in those, those two chunks. The first section there includes two parables, one about servants awaiting their master, and one about a homeowner whose house is broken into. We'll work with that first. And then in the second piece, there's yet another sort of, or a continuation of a parable about a master and servants, but the the focus shifts in the second part of the passage to what about the servant who isn't prepared? So we'll look at that Second, let me do a little bit of just sort of historical context because verse 35 really sets the table for and frames what the entirety of the passage is about. But it's two little phrases rendered in English, uh, something that would have been much stronger in Greek. And so your English translation likely starts off in verse 35 and says, be prepared for or be ready for service. If you just took the Greek and you went straight across into English, it would say, gird your loins, which is not a phrase that we ever say. Uh, That is a a phrase that is used biblically quite a bit. In fact, maybe the most popular references in Job chapter 38, Job has been uh, stating his desire for an audience with the Lord so that he can explain himself and why he doesn't deserve the suffering that has happened. And the Lord shows up and speaks to Job and in Job 38, verse 3, the Lord says, now brace yourself, that's the English translation, but the Hebrew is, gird your loins like a man and answer me when I speak. That's Job 38. Girding your loins would be to prepare for action. Now, women probably, uh, you probably have maybe a more direct modern Uh, way to grab hold of what that means. When you're wearing a nice dress, it's very flowy and you've got to go upstairs. And in order to keep yourself from tripping up the stairs, you kind of take the extra fabric and you lift it a little bit so your feet are clear. That's the closest thing we've got to girding your loins. Men, you have no, we have no idea what that's like. You don't have to lift up your pant legs to go up the stairs, right? But in Jesus's time and all throughout the Old Testament, men wore these long robes. And so if you were 
going to need to run or to fight or something, all of the fabric would get in the way. So what you did was you girded your loins. You took that extra fabric and you sort of lifted it up and you went through this process. You can Google it and find a picture of it, whereby you tied that sort of around your waist and you ended up with, with what essentially sort of looks like an adult diaper on. But your legs were free and able to move and to run. And so you would be prepared for action. Gird your loins. That's what Jesus says. Prepare yourself. But the thrust is on remaining prepared. Be prepared and stay prepared. And then the second part, have your lamps lit. Again, we don't really have great sort of frame of reference for what that would mean or what that would entail. When you wake up in the morning and it's maybe before the sun has come up and it's dark, you either flip your cell phone light on, you grab the lamp next to your bed, or you know your room well enough that you do the thing where you walk over to the wall and you slap your hand against the wall and you feel around until you find the light plate and then you flip the switch and the light's on and it happens instantly. But in their time, Having your lamp lit required making sure there was oil for the lamp and getting the wick trimmed and finding something to light it. There was a process required to have that lamp lit and ready so that you would have light. It's not something that you could just, a couple of quick swipes on your cell phone and boom, you've got light for the room. It required a process. And so Jesus says, have that lamp lit and ready. Be prepared and stay prepared. Have your lamp lit and keep it lit. And that idea of remaining ready, keeping the light on, keeping your loins girded, frames the whole passage. Why? Because the king is coming back. And this all fits inside of what Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12. Started by Jesus saying that there's hidden sin that's not going to remain hidden forever. It will be shouted from the rooftops. That there's a father who is frighteningly powerful and unthinkably loving. That the son expects his people to proclaim him and his kingdom. And that the Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with but can be trusted. And that you've got all this stuff and we're tempted toward greed and wanting more of that stuff. But what you ought to do is live in light of the king and his kingdom, not in slavery to your greed. Why? The whole passage is about the reality that judgment is real. Throughout the collection of teaching, Jesus has been underscoring the reality and the importance of eternity. Jesus has made it clear that a person's heart and their heart's submission to or rebellion against the rule and reign of God is what's ultimately going to determine what eternity and judgment looks like for them. But that judgment is coming. In fact, if you just look sort of visually there at verses 35 to 48 and just scan your eyes over it, the word come or comes or coming appears nine times. That's the central thrust of the passage. The king is coming and when he comes, judgment comes with him. That's what the whole passage is about. It's been flowing through this whole sermon, this whole collection of teachings, and now it builds to this crescendo, and Jesus is going to underline it and cut straight to the point, and he does so to his followers. Remember, that's who's collected there, thousands of people who want to hear Jesus' teaching, and he instructs his disciples. 
And some of what he says sounds particularly harsh. In fact, it's the harsh parts of the passage that jump off the page to us. Jesus is radically honest, and his radical honesty is an act of grace. His goal is not to be harsh for the sake of being harsh. His goal is to paint the deepest realities of life in accurate colors so that humanity can live and act accordingly. Our modern culture generally bristles at the idea of eternal judgment. We shy away from discussion about it. We downplay it. We avoid it. But to be loving like Jesus is to be honest about eternity and honest about judgment while holding out the beauty of the Savior. And so Jesus looks at his followers and he says, ready or not, here I come. And this is what comes with me. And that thing is judgment. So look at verses 36 down to 40. Two parables in there. Masters and a servant, homeowner and a thief. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The focus of the two parables are on those who are watching or waiting or looking for the master to come home or for the thief to break in. So the first takeaway in this chunk is that followers of Jesus look and long for the Lord's long-awaited return. Two short parables, servants and a homeowner. Just a reminder, a parable typically has one main point. And the one main point in these two parables are about the servants or the homeowner. Jesus is teaching something about those who are his followers and the way that they relate to him as the king. Now, it's important to note that Jesus need not be necessarily the master or the thief. It's, it's hard for us to think about Jesus in the position of a thief. The emphasis of the parable is on the servants and the homeowner. And what are they doing? Well, they're staying ready for the master's return. They're looking for him, waiting for him. The homeowner doesn't know when the thief might come, but he's prepared in general in case it happens. Jesus is letting us know that as his followers, we aren't just kind of hanging out oblivious to eternity and judgment. We know that those things are coming, that they're coming either with our death when we stand before the Lord or upon Jesus's return when everyone will be judged. We're to be aware of them, looking for them, prepared for them. And that stands in contrast to those who are not followers of Jesus. But if you take the whole of the Bible, it's not just that we're looking for that return. The Bible paints a picture of the people of God's kingdom longing for that return. And we long for it because of our understanding of what will happen when that moment arrives. In Revelation 21, we're told that when the king returns and puts a full and final end to Satan, there will be no more grief, no more pain, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. 
We should long for that. Psalm 84 says that one day in the courts of the Lord is better than thousands elsewhere. We should long for that. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that because of Jesus, we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's being held for us, kept by Christ until the day that we receive it. And that means we long for that day expectantly. And we can even rejoice because we know that day's coming even in the midst of the difficulty and the trials and the sorrows of living in a broken world. In Philippians chapter one, Paul tells this church in Philippi, even while he's in prison and suffering, that he desires to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So we look for this return of the king, but we also long for it. Followers of Jesus long for the king to return and all of the blessed joy that comes with it. Then in verse 41, there's sort of a transition here. It's worth not missing the transition because sometimes even in the middle of a hard passage, it's nice to just be able to laugh about something. So Jesus gives this teaching these two parables about the fact that he is coming back and that his followers ought to be looking for him to come, you also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Peter puts his hand up and says, is this on the test? Like, is this, is this for me or for someone else? Right, think back to when you were in college or when you're in high school or maybe you're in college or you're in high school now and you've got the teacher or the professor walking through a bunch of stuff and you're trying to figure out if this is the stuff that you need to pay attention to or if this is the moment that you could tune out for a little while. And so you say, is this on the test? And God bless that teacher. They just want you to learn, child, right? And to love learning. And so they try their best to either give a non-answer or to just, they just give in and they're like, nope, it's not on the test. And they understand that that means you're not paying attention until it's time for something that will be on the test. Peter asks that question. Is this for me or is this for somebody else? And just like Jesus did with the man who kind of raised his hand earlier in Jesus's teaching and said, help my brother and I sort out the inheritance, Jesus gives no time to Peter's question. Doesn't even really acknowledge it. In verse 42, Jesus just keeps going with the teaching. Who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. The focus changes here to those who are not ready. Not ready for the master's return in the parable. Not ready for the king's return. And so it's really important to note, Jesus jumps back into this and we're still in the realm of this extended parable about servants and a master. This time, the 
master has put a manager over all of the servants of the household. And that manager has abused his position in the master's trust. He's gotten drunk, eaten all the food, you know, wasted the master's money, treated the other servants poorly. And then the master comes home on a day and at an hour that the manager did not expect. And then comes the part that's hard to swallow. What happens for those who aren't looking and longing for the king's return? Well, there's punishment. Judgment. That's the main thing. It's really important. Jesus' description of that punishment and of that judgment is still within the context of the parable. Verse 46. That servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He, that's the master, will cut him, that's the manager, to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That imagery is stark. The servant is cut to pieces. It's in the context of the parable. I've said that a few times because it's important to point this out. What Jesus says here is not a literal description of what will happen to those who don't know him. It's an illustrative description Why do I say that or how do I know that? First, the context of the parable makes that clear. Second, if you just went inside the parable and got very literal about it, can you both cut someone to pieces and then, next phrase, assign them a place with other people? That doesn't make sense. You can't do both of those things. Jesus is illustrating a point inside of this parable, but when the master returns, there will be swift and complete judgment or punishment for those who are not prepared for his return. That is what Jesus is laying out. Swift and complete rejection. Rejection from who or from what? Rejection from the master's presence. He will be sent away and assigned a place with the unfaithful. Then Jesus goes on to say, that those who know the master's will and don't do it, will be punished more severely, more harshly than those who don't know the master's will and don't do it. More will be expected of those who know more of the master's will. Let's kind of lift that up out of the parable and hold it in line with the rest of Luke chapter 12. What is this for? What does it mean? Who is it for? I want to suggest, particularly because of verses 47 and 48, that Jesus' parable here in the second part, the extension of that illustration, is a strong word for leaders within God's people. And I say that because Jesus says, those of whom much is expected, or much is known, much will be expected. Those who have been given more, more will be expected. Of them. But there's also a message here for all of Jesus' followers. So Peter's question is this for us or for everybody? Jesus says it's for you and for everybody. Those who aren't looking and longing for the return of the king or the master will face swift and complete rejection. 
That statement is made to all of the apostles. Peter asks that explicitly. But I think it's intended very poignantly for those who lead within the life of the church or who lead among God's people. Why do I say that? Well, who's there among them? Judas. And that ought to remind us that though a person makes a public profession, the Lord knows the heart. Go back to the start of Luke chapter 12. What is hidden. And he will judge based on that. And, as I'll show in just a second, our outward actions will give evidence to that inward reality. Fit Judas just into the entirety of this passage. When push came to shove, what did Judas choose? The bag of coins over the Savior. His greed over worship of the king. He did something hidden that ultimately became known. By his actions, he displayed the truth of his heart. Much is expected of Judas. And he will be judged according to what he knows. It's worth noting that the nature of this whole thing seems to point to the reality that those who lead within the body of Christ had better be sure that they do so in light of submission to the king. They had better lead in such a way as to lead others towards submission to the king. Those who lead within the life of God's people ought to lead from a heart that's submitted to the rule and reign of God and ought to lead people toward hearts that are submitted to the rule and reign of God. The passage applies not just to leaders, but it's a strong word of warning for the whole body of Christ. You better get your heart right with the Lord because you might be able to fool everyone else, but you are not going to fool him. He's coming back and with him will come judgment and he knows what's hidden and it will be shouted from the rooftops, and the Father is unthinkably loving, but he is frighteningly powerful. And what's also tucked inside of here, at the very least, is that Jesus is displaying that our actions will give away the reality that exists within our hearts. This isn't the first time that Jesus has said that, but it is a stark reminder and a strong image of that truth the truth of what is on the other side of eternity for those who do not live in submission to the rule and the reign of the king. Our looking and longing for the return of Jesus compels us to live and to labor in light of his return. In fact, in this part of the passage, the emphasis is no longer on what's hidden in the heart, but what is displayed in the actions. Look at verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job. Look at verse 47. And that servant who knew the master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it. So the master comes back in the parable and what is the evidence? Whether or not the manager of the servants is doing the master's will. Followers of Jesus live and labor in light of the Lord's long-awaited return. We must examine our hearts continually, but our actions will display our heart's deepest and truest love. 
We've been talking almost exclusively about the heart over the last few weeks, but Jesus makes it clear here that action displays the reality of the heart. In his commentary on Luke chapter 12, J.C. Ryle talks about this section this way. He says, we hear a great deal about people's intentions, hopes, wishes, feelings, and professions. It would be better if we could hear more about people's practice. It is not the servant who is found wishing and professing, but the servant who is found doing whom Jesus calls blessed. The lesson before us is not about justification, but about sanctification, not about saving faith, but about holiness of life. The point is not what a man should do to be saved, but what a saved man ought to do. The teaching of scripture is clear and express upon this subject. A saved man ought to be, quote, careful to maintain good works. That's from Titus chapter three. And the desire of a true Christian ought to be to be found doing. J.C. Ryle makes a helpful distinction here between justification and sanctification. This passage does not say that a person needs to be doing in order to be saved. This says that a person who is saved will be found doing. Legalism says do this and you will be saved. Sanctification says be saved and you will do this. This is about sanctification. If you have a heart that is submitted to the king, you're looking and longing for his return and you're living and laboring in light of the fact that it will happen. It's not behavior modification or behavior adjustment. This is living according to the new nature that we have as followers of Jesus. Having been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, having been remade by the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit present within us and remaking us, having seen the reality of what awaits us in eternity and longing for it, having seen the truth of the gospel and clinging to it, we live in accordance with our new nature. That nature is one that is submitted to and continually submitting to the rule and the reign of God in our life. Our new nature is a nature that is joyfully submitted to God's rule and reign. And so we live in accordance to that. We busy ourselves in the work of the king. We live in such a way that displays the kingdom that the king is building in us and in his people and in the world. Our daily living is consumed with the realities of the kingdom. Go back to the last passage. Even our finances. Go back to the start. Even what we do when no one is watching. The work of our life is to be dedicated to the kingdom that God is building. That doesn't mean that we all do career ministry, but it does mean that every follower of Jesus lives a kingdom-minded life in every aspect of life. Your job, your family, your finances, your relationships, your money, your hobbies, your talents, your time, your parenting, your grandparenting, your serving, your engagement with the world, your presence or use on social media, all of it is subject to the king. Subject to a king who is returning and who with him is bringing judgment. This passage here in Luke chapter 12 would state implicitly that not living in a kingdom-minded way gives away the reality of your heart, that it must not be submitted to the king and to his rule, and to his reign. Now, that does not mean that you live in sinless perfection. It does not mean that as a follower of Jesus, there isn't sin that you're constantly warring against. But it does mean that if you've got obvious and overt sin that you're not warring against, you must not be submitted to the king. To be found 
doing the work of the master does not mean that you need to be in church when the Lord returns, but Jesus makes it clear that we best be being the church when he returns. It doesn't mean that you need to live your life in a worship service in order to be faithful, but it does mean that the faithful absolutely live their lives as ongoing acts of worship. Followers of Jesus look and long for, live and labor in light of the Lord's long-awaited return. I'm gonna add one more L to this. There are a lot of L's this morning. One more L, but it's not going up on the screen. All of this happens under the banner of love. It is love that compels this way of living. Certainly our love for the king, but more importantly, the king's love for us. All of this looking and longing, living and laboring happens under the banner of the Lord's love for his people. You'll notice that there are two blesseds in the passage. Verses 37 and 38 give the first one. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near the dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. The second one comes in verse 43. Blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Blessed means happy or fortunate. Happy are those who are alert about eternity and doing the will of Jesus. Blessed are those, fortunate are those who are alert about eternity and doing the will of Jesus. Notice that there's a big contrast in that to last week. Last week, we saw that Jesus said, foolish are those who are only concerned about money and stuff and their greed. Foolish are those who want more for themselves, more for themselves, more for themselves. Now this week, happy are those who are looking and longing for Jesus while living and laboring in light of his return. Happy or fortunate are those who want more of the king more of the king. More of the king in terms of eternity with him and more of the kings in terms of the visible reality of his rule and reign in their lives here and now. Blessed. But it doesn't stop there. There's something even more remarkable in the passage and it kind of gets drowned out because of the strength of the statements in verses 47 and 48. Look at verses... 37 and 38 again. This is amazing. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, look at this, he, the master, will get ready, have them, the servants, recline at the table, then come and serve them. That's unbelievable. Did you see what happened there? Jesus is saying, my servants look and long for my return. They live and labor in light of the fact that it's going to happen. And then what did he say he would do for those who are doing that? The master serves the servant. That's unbelievable. In the middle of this passage with strong language and vivid imagery about punishment and judgment, Jesus, the king, makes clear Look at my love for those who are my people. The servant becomes the served. The master becomes the servant. When you came in this morning, you should have received one of these little cups if you want to grab that. We're going to take communion together. The first little piece of cellophane opens up the wafer and then there's a second piece that opens up 
the Jews. Just kind of hold on for that, to that for a second because I want us to continue to think about this. Jesus is making a statement about what will happen when the king comes. But it's also this amazing statement about what happened at the cross. Because what happened at the cross is a foretaste of what's going to happen at our judgment. From our position now, we look at the cross and we see Jesus serving us unto our eternal benefit and to eternal life. His body broken, his blood poured out. Serving sinners by taking what they deserved, the just wrath that their sin deserved, upon himself in their place. When we stand in judgment, we're going to see something remarkable. Just walk through Luke 12 with me one more time. In our moment of judgment, Jesus says, our sin is going to be as real and as evident as it's ever been. It's all going to be shouted from the rooftops. In our moment of judgment, the holiness of God is going to be as real and as evident as it has ever been. We'll see his frightening power and his unthinkable love clearly in an unimaginable way. In our moment of judgment, the truth of the Son and the need for everyone to know about Him and His sufficiency will be as real and as evident as it's ever been. Philippians chapter 2 says that. Every knee is going to bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is going to be the sufficiency of the Son. Everyone's going to see it. In our moment of judgment, the goodness of the Holy Spirit's work to reveal our sin to reveal the Savior's sufficiency, that's going to be as real and as evident as it's ever been. In our moment of judgment, the piddling ridiculousness of the world's offerings is going to be as clear and as evident as it's ever been. We're going to realize all that we wasted in pursuit of them while we stand in the light of the holiness of God. And then what's going to happen? The Son's going to serve those who are His. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to rise up on your behalf in that moment and his righteousness is going to cover you. His blood is going to wash you clean. His pardon is going to be granted to you. And all the blessings that are his as the perfectly righteous, sinless, eternal son of God are going to finally and fully be yours. The king is going to serve his people. That's unbelievable. I mean, the wonder of that. And so we read this passage and we get bogged down and what does it mean for the nature of judgment and punishment and exactly how does it look? And Jesus is screaming, judgment's coming. I want you to be aware of that and punishment comes with it. But I also want you to know that my people saved by my grace ushered into my kingdom, I'm going to serve you in that moment in a way that you cannot even imagine. I'm going to get you ready clean in my righteousness, washed in my blood, and I'm going to have you recline at the wedding feast of the Lamb for all of eternity. If you were looking and longing your whole life, in that moment of judgment, the thing that you've been looking and longing for has arrived. You've lived and labored, and now you're on the brink of eternal rest, and the sun serves you. He served you on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, and he will serve you in your moment of judgment. You hidden in him, his blood 
washing you clean. So I want to invite you, if you've received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sins, to take communion with us. The cross is this unbelievable picture of the son serving his people and it points us forward to the moment that he will serve us in our judgment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Drink in remembrance of him. He has served his people on the cross. He will serve us in our moment of judgment. Before the throne of God above, brothers and sisters, you have a strong and perfect plea. A strong and perfect plea who took joy in serving you at his moment of death on the cross and who will take joy in serving you in your moment of judgment as you're ushered into eternal life. We look and we long for that moment and until then we live and labor in light of it in response to the Lord's love for us. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. You can stand. I would be uh, remiss this morning to not speak directly uh, to those who you know in your own heart that you have not submitted yourself to God's rule and reign. You've not received his grace for the forgiveness of your sin through faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that this morning. You know in your heart that ready or not, here he comes and you will stand in that moment not ready. We would love to have a conversation with you. There's, I'm sure, someone seated near you who would love to have a conversation with you. If you're watching with us at home, you might be watching with someone who would love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to have Jesus as Savior, but also to have him as Lord and how you could do that. And so find someone on our staff, talk to someone that you came with, um, don't pass the moment by if the Holy Spirit is stirring inside of you the realization that you're not ready for the king to return, but that by God's grace through faith in Jesus, you can be. So please, please find someone, have a conversation about what that might look like. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that for those of us who have been saved by your grace through faith in him, Lord, we will stand in our moment of judgment and the sun will rise and serve us. God, would you help us to look forward to that moment, to long for it, God? Would your Holy Spirit lead us to be a people who live lives and who labor in light of the king's return? God, help us to be a people who are submitted to your rule and to your reign in every aspect of our lives. God, remind us of your unthinkable love toward us. And would that be what compels us into these kingdom-minded lives? God, would you make your glory known in your world among your people? For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat really quickly. We want to do one more thing before we go. Um, 
and that is that our leadership team uh, is, is going to kind of make an announcement, share some information, and Doug Davis is going to do that on behalf of the team. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, we have, uh, on behalf of the leadership team, good morning, uh, we have what we consider a pretty positive and exciting <clears throat> announcement uh, to share with the family. Um, and we felt like it was more appropriate that we would share it than Tim, because uh, Tim is going to be on, take a sabbatical leave here starting September 20th. So uh, starting last spring um, and then through the summer, uh, the leadership team has been in the process of drafting, proposing, and then finally passing this summer a sabbatical policy for our staff. So we have not had a sabbatical policy here at LCF um, like many other churches do. Um, but we really felt like um, we wanted to draft that and get that in place so that our pastors can take a sabbatical. Um, and again, if you've done any research over the last 18 months with what the pandemic and just the division in our country has done to our pastoral staff here in America, but not only in America, but throughout the world, it's been pretty, uh, pretty trying. Um, so um, we definitely wanted to offer that. So we passed it. And Tim is going to be our first pastor to take uh, a sabbatical, and that's going to start in a couple of weeks. So him being our lead pastor, we felt like it would probably be a good idea to come up here and share with you guys kind of just some things. Um, and this will all be on our, our section of the website again. I think they're going to tape one of these announcements. Um, but, uh, um, you know, we really just wanted to share that... Um, you know, ministry has no boundaries, um, and, and, and most of you are aware of that. It has no time frame or timeline, so it can become very taxing and trying on all of our pastors. And, you know, one thing we wanted to really commit to do is take care of our pastors here. We have a, a wonderful group of leaders. Um, um, definitely you can see that they're blessed and filled with God's spirit. And, you know, at the same time, um, you know, that can take a hit at times just with the nature of their ministry. Um, so the purpose, real briefly, was just to get staff away from work life and from the church life and the capacity of having to work every Sunday. Uh, allow God to minister, rejuvenate, rest, and refresh. Um, the pastors um, do have qualifications and requirements of what they can use the time for. Um, and basically, that's just spiritual growth, nourish their relationship with God, study, which I know Tim is, is looking forward to. Um, but just take a break. Sorry, my screen's moving here. Uh, take a break from formal ministry um, at LCF and, and really at any point or anywhere at that time so that they can rest. Um, the length of time is six to eight weeks, as it says on there, and that's uh, determined by position and by years of experience. Um, and then we wanted to share that uh, while Tim is on or any pastor's on sabbatical, it's a chance for the, the body, uh, the family to grow. It's also a discipleship opportunity uh, for us and for the other pastors um, to just continue life um, without our lead pastor and know that we can do that um, and that ministry and everything doesn't hinge just on Tim or any pastor, but that we as a family um, can minister to them by taking over roles and things like that while he's gone. Um, a couple of things we would ask that all of us would do, and that is to pray for Tim uh, during his time on sabbatical, that God would use that time to refresh him and, and, and teach him and grow him in his relationship with God. Um, and then also we had, we just kind of ran into this um, at, towards the end of the summer, but other churches that have sabbaticals also take that opportunity to send uh, encouraging emails to the pastor. And so we're going to have information on the website, but we would encourage you, if, please do that. Uh, that. That way it would bless Tim and Melody. But do that to our website, or our website, our email address, please, uh, on the website. So our leadership team, and then we will kind of uh, distribute those out to Tim. Because again, we really want Tim to be a, 
separate from here for his whole eight weeks um, so that uh, God can work where he wants to work in Tim's life. Um, and then the other thing we would ask is just please do not email or contact Tim for um, any pastoral needs. Uh, the one thing that we did do, and there's a lot of logistics with this that I discovered. It's, it's not that easy, but we had to work out the logistic of what's going to happen when a pastor leaves and takes a sabbatical. So we have the staff. They already know. They are aware that Tim's taking sabbatical. So we have all the roles and responsibilities distributed among the pastors. Uh, so the church will continue, and you guys will all be taken care of. Um, and we have that divvied out. So if you need something, please contact the church. Um, they'll get you to the right pastor. Um, but we just are excited. Um, and, and Tim is the first of several of our pastors that will be doing that. Um, and so we'll, we'll just kind of make the same announcement, but we're excited for that. And know that Tim needs it, um, and uh, it'll just be a, a huge blessing for him, and uh, we're excited. Thanks, Doug. Uh, like Doug said, so that starts on the 20th. I'll be here, and I'll, I'll preach next Sunday, and at one o'clock after third service, I'll just kind of like right off into the sunset, I guess. Um, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I feel incredibly fortunate and blessed to be given the opportunity. I'll be honest, I'm kind of nervous about it. I've, I've not ever done something like this before, but we say here, um, I have said repeatedly, and I mean it, Jesus is a, the big deal here, not any particular member of our staff, certainly not myself, and he will continue to be the big deal here, and this place isn't what it is because of me, but because of the work of God in and among his people here, and so that will continue on while I'm gone to his praise and to his glory, and then I'll come back and rejoin you all in November, and it will be like nothing missed a beat, and so um, I'm looking forward to that. I will see you all next weekend, and then I won't see you for a while. Sound good? All right. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.